Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics and this is our penultimate episode and it seems very appropriate that I'm going to be talking to Helen Thompson about her fantastic new book, Disorder. Talking Politics has been brought to you for the last five years in partnership with the London Review of Books, who are mourning the end of the podcast the only way they know how, with one last unbeatable subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Get six issues, that's three months of the LRB, where I'll be continuing to write about politics and more, for just £6 by using the URL lrb.me slash talk6. That's lrb.me slash talk6. Helen, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's interviewing you who's going to say this. There's so much in this book, we're not going to be able to cover all of it. And also, there's a lot in this book that you and I and other people have talked about on Talking Politics over the last five and a half, six years. Geopolitics, oil, energy, the fate of democracy, climate change, China. It's all in here. And you tell a series of interlocking stories. So I'm going to start, because we have to start somewhere, in the middle of one of these stories. And then we'll see and how many of the others we can get to. And then I want to come to climate change at the end, because I think it does. And you do it in the book. It pulls a lot of this together. I'm just going to read one sentence from the book, which kind of opens up a whole set of questions that you then interrogate in lots of different ways. But we're going to go back to 1956. So you write the Year of Suez. In 1956, the inherent tensions of the United States acting as an oil guarantor for its allies via a supply coming from a part of the world where it lacked military power produced a profound geopolitical crisis whose monumental consequences still reverberate, and I think we could say still reverberate today. What's in that sentence is one of the themes of your book, which is the tension between the United States' geopolitical role, including as an energy guarantor, and the many other states who are energy dependent, and what that does to America's sense of what it can do in the world. Let's take it back to Suez and then sort of unpick it from there. So what was going on in 1956 that brought out this kind of fault line in America's place in the world? The fundamental thing about Suez, and I think that Suez is often misunderstood as a crisis because it's sort of seen as simply this moment of British imperial hubris. Mm. It gets at this fault line that I think is there from the beginning of the post-war world where American presidents want West European countries to use oil, to import oil from the Middle East and not from the United States. That's quite a change in some respects in what had happened in the first part of the 20th um, century. And that means, in the context of the Cold War, because it doesn't mean the Soviet Union given that there's a Cold War going on, it means the Middle East. But the United States is, is not a significant power in the Middle East at this point. Um, the important military power in the Middle East is Britain, and it's an imperial version of military power. So essentially what the Americans are saying is that they will act as a guarantor of Western European energy security, but the actual implementation of that is dependent upon Britain being an imperial power in the Middle East. So what happens in Suez after the Egyptian president nationalises the company that runs the, the Suez Canal is that the British and the French, along with the Israelis, begin military action against Egypt. And President Eisenhower pulls a plug on it. And he pulls a plug on it by using American financial power. And he refuses to allow the release of any oil from America's emergency programme. He says at one point that they can boil in their own oil, so 
to speak, i.e. they haven't got any, they're going to boil in it anyway. So this is a total and utter disaster from the, the West European perspective. The West German Chancellor, obviously West Germany is not involved in the military action, Konrad Adenauer, says that what the British and the French are doing over Suez is European reason of state. And then an American president has basically said, you can't do that. And not only can you not do that, we're not going to help you with the consequences of the fact that we can't do that. So that's why it's so consequential as a moment in itself. And then the aftermath of it really sets up a number of issues, one of which is, is the one that really reverberates to this day. West Europeans are looking for, in different ways, different answers. The French answer to what's happened is to say, OK, quite fortuitously, there's oil in Algeria. It had been found in Algeria the same year as um, Suez. Algeria is still part of France at that point. So France is keen on Algeria being part of the European Economic Community, the Treaty of Rome being signed the year after Suez. So then the idea becomes that Western Europe can rely on Algerian oil in the end. This goes wrong because the French can't actually hold on in Algeria any more than the British ultimately can hold on as an imperial power in the Middle East. But the second answer is nuclear power. So the European Atomic Energy Community, which has already been discussed at the time when the Suez Crisis took place, that is part of the, the Treaty of Rome. And here the idea is that what... Europe needs or Western Europe needs is nuclear power because nuclear power is the way of having European energy self-sufficiency or West European energy self-sufficiency. So the final president of the European Atomic Energy Community um, says in a speech to the European Parliament, and I think it's 1963, he says that if we have foreign fuel dependency, as he calls it, we are economically dependent. And if we have economic dependency, we have political dependency. And obviously, that's still a good part of the European problem today. But the final answer, and the one that really shapes the world in which we live, is the turn to Soviet oil. Uh, so if you can't get oil from the Middle East, you're going to take it from the part of the world other than the United States, where it's most produced. That becomes, in the 1960s, not just a turn to Soviet oil but Soviet gas as gas becomes a more important energy source and so what starts is the building of these pipelines these gas and oil pipelines that take Russian or then Soviet I should say energy exports across the Soviet Union across Eastern Europe and into the middle of Western Europe and one of the places that they go through perhaps in some sense the most consequential place that they go through is Ukraine Ukraine being at this point obviously part of the Soviet Union but after the Soviet Union's dissolution in 1991, Ukraine being an independent state, we know that these pipelines are central to the politics of Ukraine since independence. And on Tuesday of this week, after enormous pressure from outside and particularly from European Union members like Poland, the German government has effectively said that um, Nord Stream 2, the second pipeline under the Baltic Sea that bypasses Ukraine it won't be certified for the time being. I think it's very difficult to see now how it can be resurrected. It doesn't change the fact there's still a Nord Stream 1 going under the, the Baltic Sea. But I think there's a pretty direct line between the fault lines that we see in terms of Europe's energy dependency on Russia that go back to the fallout from Western Europeans' energy dependency on the Middle East and the amount of oil that was coming up the, the Suez Canal, up the Red Sea, into the Suez Canal and out into the, the Mediterranean. When that went wrong, not that it ended imports of oil for West European countries from the Middle East, but when it had that geopolitical moment where they realised that 
they just don't have the control that they thought over this situation. They turn eastwards to the Soviet Union and we live in that world, or we live in that Europe, I should say. So there are a couple of questions I want to ask you about that that I think connect some of the broader themes of the book. So one of the things I take it that you're doing in this book is trying to get away from sort of conventional turning points, 2007 and eight, maybe 1989. And you, you tell stories that have these deep underlying connections that cut across those turning points. And in the age of oil and gas, you've just told one of them, gets us from 1956 to 2022 with a continuity that isn't somehow broken by the end of the Cold War. When I was reading it, I almost thought even more than that, that the Cold War is a kind of creates an artificial version of these tensions. It looks like it's centrally about the tension between ideologies, the United States and the Soviet Union, these imperial clashes. But actually, in a way, once the Cold War ends, it's not like you get a new world. It's like you've stripped the surface off an underlying set of tensions and predicaments, which are more acute not less acute. So the, the central one here, in the age of oil and gas, it's European energy dependency in the absence of the nuclear option and Algeria, which seemed like now a slightly wishful way out of that. And that dilemma of being Europe with its illusions or reality of power and energy dependency, unavoidable energy dependency in the age of oil and gas, the end of the Cold War makes it more, not less acute. No, I agree. I have put a chapter juncture around the end of the, the Cold War. Um, I think because if we think about it in terms of the 90s around the exercise of American power, then there is something that's consequential about the end of the, the Cold War. But very much in terms of Europe, this is actually things getting a lot more difficult again. It's getting a, a lot more difficult if we just keep to energy terms for the moment because in a world in which Russia now has to use Ukraine as a transit state, you are putting an energy dynamic into a question that historically has always been pretty difficult, which is the security of those countries that sit when they are independent states in the, in the border between Germany and, and Russia. And obviously there's been a lot of different territorial formations of that, including empires and not just the Russian Empire in Europe's history. And what we saw post-1991 is a lot of independent states, two of them because it's not just Ukraine where the pipeline is concerned, it's, it's Belarus of the former um, Soviet states and then Poland of the former Warsaw Pact states have got these pipelines running through them, which once... Russia under Putin gets some sense of geopolitical purpose back again, he regards as major problems. And he spends a lot of time, I mean, pretty systematically, trying to cut Ukraine in particular out of Russian transit system. This is not something that he's just sort of done in an accidental fashion when he gets in a bad mood about what's going on in Ukraine. He has been trying to do that. I mean, in some ways, I think actually in the Yeltsin era, you can see some attempts to deal with the Ukraine transit issue from the Russian point of view as well. And that's a massive problem for European countries. It's a really big problem for the European Union because it means that this stuff, these issues, are going on right on its borders at a time, particularly during the 90s and the early part, the later 90s, I'd say, the latter 90s, because leave the Balkan Wars out of it, and the early 2000s when there's this idea that the European Union is a new kind of power, that it doesn't have to really bother with geopolitical questions because these have all been solved in Europe. And it's just nonsense. 
So the other side of that, in a way, we've got European energy dependence comes and goes, but at least the realistic prospect of American energy independence. And part of the tension you describe in 56, I mean, it, it, you tell a longer story, you go back to the beginning of the 20th century, you take it forward to now. But one of the things I took from the idea of American energy independence is it's also potentially a double-edged sword or even a curse. You know, Europeans have to really focus on this question. But it allows American and American foreign policy to be kind of fickle around some of this. Um, and some of the commitments you, you say that would be needed to be a genuine guarantor at various points, and including potentially more recently, it's not America guaranteeing its own energy supply. It's America guaranteeing the energy supply of its allies. And that's a completely different kind of dynamic. It's less, one for a better word, but one we use often on this podcast, it's less existential. It really is existential for Europeans. So is that right that in a way that the, the sort of the things that are interacting often with potentially disastrous consequences are European energy dependence and the sort of ebb and flow of American energy independence, including in the last sort of 10 plus years post the shale revolution? Yeah, I mean, I think that this story of what happens to American energy independence is is quite complicated and it definitely has the ebbs and flows that you're describing. And it's also shaped by different presidents' judgment or different administrations anyway's judgment about these questions. So if you go back to the 1970s, so the point in which the United States from 1970 onwards is beginning to import quite significant amounts of oil and you could say the end of an age of American oil self-sufficiency. That doesn't mean to say during that period it didn't import anything but it didn't necessarily have to. It's come to an end. The first or two of the three presidents, we so not Ford, which I, I, I don't actually know how, how, how serious Ford. Ford was on this, um, but he, he, he doesn't make big speeches about it in the way in which... Uh, Carter and Nixon do. So Nixon and Carter are obsessed with the idea that the United States must restore its energy independence. And Carter, in some sense, regards it as a moral crusade. And he compares it to you know, the Declaration of Independence back in, in 1776, that America's not going to get, in some sense, it's almost like its soul back again, unless it can unless it can be energy independent. And he almost implies that the price of that might be using less energy. He does. I mean, I mean, which is an astonishing he thought. He does. He, he absolutely does, yeah. For him, it, it, it is... driving less. It, it's both, yeah, it's driving less. For him, it is both about finding the basis for new American production and that he hopes that, was going to, that will include shale. And at the same time, it must mean for him consuming less energy. And if in the interim it's a choice then he would definitely have been on the we reduce our energy consumption because we can't be taking it from a part of the world in which is so problematic for us, meaning meaning the Middle East. But Reagan, who's confronted with the facts on the ground, we're not quite the same problem because Alaskan oil production is taken off by that point. The United States is still importing a lot of oil through the 1980s, through the years of the Reagan administration. and He's not really interested in in American energy independence in the same way. He seems to think that you can manage it as a foreign policy problem in the, in the Middle East. And then I think what we can see through the 90s is a certain, uh, certainly after the first Iraq war anyway, a certain disengagement from the issue, partly because this is an era in which oil prices are very low. But then when George Bush Jr. comes in, his administration is obsessed with energy again. The first way that they are obsessed is to treat it as a foreign policy issue and say, OK, um, that we need to reorganise the Middle East. In some sense, I think you could use old language in American sphere of influence 
uh, in which it will be a reliable source of oil imports for the United States. And as we know, that runs into the Iraq war not working out. Um, and then there's much more of an emphasis on the language of energy independence again. And if we then move on to the Obama administration, Obama is keen on energy independence. He very much wants to cast shale in those terms. And I think what's interesting about the shale boom, both on the oil side and the gas side, ultimately, the United States has a higher level of energy independence. It's not, you couldn't be considered complete energy independence at all. But this causes them a whole host of problems because now what happens in the shale age is, is that it destabilizes the US-Saudi relationship because the US is now not so dependent upon Saudi imports any longer. And it turns the United States into a competitor with Russia for gas exports to Europe. Because by this point, they can be shipped by sea, liquid natural gas. And so the United States and, and Russia are fighting over European markets. And obviously, the, the country that I've left out of this so far is China. <laughs> but meanwhile, while all this is going on, in, in terms of the old dynamics between Europe, the Middle East and Soviet Union and Russia, we've got much higher levels of energy demand in Asia in general and very much so in China in particular so now the Russians and the, the Saudis, and to some extent I think the Americans as well, are, are competing about selling oil and gas, though not gas in the Saudis' case, to, to China. And then we're into the position which you alluded to earlier, David, where the United States itself is importing much less oil than it did from the Persian Gulf. But the United States Navy is still providing energy security in the Persian Gulf. And much of the oil that's coming out of the Persian Gulf is now going to China and Japan. And this was a subject in which Trump talked to ranting on Twitter quite a bit, essentially, like, what is the American Navy doing providing energy security for the Chinese? Which is obviously a not a quite pertinent question, but you could just put it the other way around and say, for American foreign policy problem, well, do you want the Chinese as a naval power in the in the Middle East, you're going to let the Chinese take care of their own energy security. And I'm not sure that's the world that they want in, anybody wants in, in Washington either. So in this sense, I think that this version of American energy independence coming when it has, which is essentially all relative energy independence, a restoration has actually caused the United States as many problems as it's actually addressed. And it intersects with another of the stories that you tell, which I want to come on to later, which is the story of democracy and, in the case of the United States, public opinion about, as we now tend to call them, foreign entanglements and the appetite of the American public to provide the kind of geopolitical security that costs money and lives. But before that, there's another story you tell in the middle of the book, story of finance. So I may be putting this too crudely, but when I read it, I saw parallels between the oil story and the dollar story. I mean, so sort of symbolic, as well as, you know, obviously actual, lots of actual linkages. But in a sense, you know, America's great advantage through the last hundred years has been that it's got the global reserve currency and that you know, the dollar gives the United States advantages and flexibilities. But, you know, it comes at costs. And the cost that you really emphasize is the creation of the euro dollar market, so a version of the dollar, but much less subject to American control. You know, everyone wants dollars. And some of this then happens in Europe. It's a little, I mean, I know it's not 
this isn't exactly right, but it's a little like European energy dependency. There's sort of European dollar dependency. And then there's a question for the United States of how far it's willing to go, given this and the implications it has for America and for geopolitics, to manage that realm too. And again, it's a sort of fickle story, isn't it? It's, I mean, it's completely different from managing the dollar through the Federal Reserve. That's one question. But the euro dollar market creates a whole new set of dynamics and opportunities for other players, including China and others, to kind of get involved in America's role in the world. Am I right that there are parallels? Yeah, I think so. The operational dynamics maybe don't work in anything like the same way. But if you look at, if you look at the patterns, I can definitely see what you're definitely see what you're saying. I think that what's interesting here, though, the United States, when it really comes to it, it has a remedy for this problem. It's not a remedy that doesn't have bring other problems with it. In the two thousand seven two thousand and eight crash, that the Federal Reserve has to act as a lender of last resort to these euro dollar markets and bail out these European banks. And you can argue that there was always a presumption on the side of the European banks that this is what would happen in the moment of crisis, because the moment of crisis had been foreseen back in the early 1970s when the euro dollar markets are, are getting bigger and doing so at a time in which the Bretton Woods order is coming to an end. And the question of who would act as that lender of last resort is not answered then because the assumption will be, well, the only agent, if you like, who could do this is the one who's got capacity to create dollars officially, and that's the that's the Federal Reserve. Uh, I think that the first fallout of the what the, the Federal Reserve does, actually particularly the loans aspect of it rather than the dollar swaps, causes quite a problem in American domestic politics because it's quite a revelation, understandably, when at some point, I think it's in 2010, it comes out that more than half, in fact, more, probably more like two-thirds of the biggest bank recipients of Federal Reserve support in 2007-8 are European banks and not American banks. So it raises that old question of, well, what do American voters think of the United States having to play this international role, which is there right the way back in the, in the build-up to the First World War in the first few years of the First World War? At the same time, it means, though, that this question of who the Federal Reserve is going to support with these dollar swaps is actually a geopolitical question. The Fed can deal with it on the one hand by saying, OK, that we provide support to those countries' banking systems that are systemically important. Um, but clearly there's some geopolitical dimension to this, too, if you look at the ones outside Europe that were first outside Europe and Japan that were first supported it was South Korea, Singapore, Brazil and Mexico. They didn't necessarily have much to do with the ones, the countries that needed it most at that point. And then when they don't act, when they basically have a country that's having a financial crisis and they don't offer dollar support, dollar swaps, um, it's consequential. And the Exhibit A of this is actually Ukraine. In Back in like 2013-14, Ukraine's in a financial crisis. It's in a financial crisis that precise moment in time in late 2013 because of the fact that the Fed is about to start trying, albeit unsuccessfully, to normalise monetary policy again, capital flight out of Ukraine. Ukraine needs help and the Federal Reserve doesn't give it because Ukraine's not covered by the dollar swap agreements it doesn't it's not given any indirect support from the federal reserve and the ukrainian government under yanukovych basically turns back to putin putin offers financial support 
he his government Yanukovych's government says he's no longer signing the effectively associate membership of the European Union agreement that it had previously negotiated, and then we're straight into the Ukrainian crisis of late 2013-14 that will lead to the Russian annexation of Crimea. So it might be something the Federal Reserve have been able to act as an international lender of, of last resort that gives the United States a certain power. And I think that it's a, a power that can be underestimated when people say American power is in decline. But on the other hand, it creates really difficult decisions. And it does feel like they are, the mechanisms are very different. But that basic question, 2007 and eight, the Federal Reserve had to make a judgment about where and how to use its power. And as you said, it had a tool and it used it, but it had limits and it had geographical limits. And there is something similar going on. Similar calculations have to be made about the story we were talking about earlier, you know, where, where Russian tanks, you know, we know that Russian tanks coming into certain parts of Eastern Europe would require an American response on a similar scale. But Ukraine seems to fall somewhere outside of that. And these two stories, just they feel not just symbolically connected, but they do run in parallel in some ways. If you focus on it as the Ukraine crisis, I think you could see what happened in 2014, 2013-14, as being framed in the first instance, how it, how it got to that point, how it got to the, the crisis point, came from the development of the economic relationship with the European Union. And the reason why it then turned out in the way in which it did and Ukraine lost territory is because Ukraine wasn't a member of NATO. And so if you looked at the countries that had, the states that had joined the European Union, I know that Ukraine wasn't actually joining the European Union, it was this effective associate membership. But if you look at the ones that had joined, either that the like, Poland, Hungary, and then the Baltics. I don't like in the cases of Poland and Hungary, they joined NATO first and then the European Union, or in the case of the Baltics, they're joining effectively at the same time NATO and the, the European Union. This is a move where you try to do the economic without the security issue um, being um, resolved in it, and it all goes wrong. And now the security issue came back to the, um, the fore again. And although it's clearly the case that a number of NATO members including obviously the United States, have been providing quite a lot of support in defence terms and export of weapons terms to Ukraine as a non-NATO member. The crucial fact remains that NATO is not going to fight a war for Ukraine because Ukraine's not a NATO member. And so Ukraine can be exposed to all these vulnerabilities and the crucial thing it actually needed to deal with things back in 2014, even though it wasn't in the first instance a security matter in 2014, it, it doesn't have. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
So as a way into talking about democracy, I want to ask you a question about the Eurozone, which is something that we've talked about a lot, um, and QE, which is also something that we've talked about a lot. We're sort of going through our greatest hits, but what's so amazing about this book is how it weaves it all together. So a lot of the tensions in European politics over the last couple of decades come out of the creation of the euro. And you have a line which is a sort of, in a way, a familiar line from early in the, the eurozone story, which is people would say it's too German to work for the Italians and it's too Italian to work for the Germans. And that was, in a way, the early tension in it. And then the crisis comes and then the, the, the acute eurozone crisis comes and we move into the age of QE and the ECB eventually, you know, later than some others, embraces that as the solution. Does QE make that problem worse or does it sort of take us into a new realm where it's almost redundant thinking about it in those terms the sort of tension between an Italian and a German dynamic and particularly sort of QE infinity well you know these hyperbolic versions of QE I've never quite been able to and it's partly because I presumably don't understand it well enough but whether it you know you have this phrase that we've talked about we're not in Kansas anymore people at the early stages of the eurozone understood it was it had a really deep tension running through it, the way it was locking these countries together in dynamics that might work for none of them. And then QE is a way of resolving immediate problems. Does it, does it deepen those tensions or does it create a, a new world entirely? It is a new world uh, in this sense uh, that if you had said to anyone in the Bundesbank you know, back in 1991, after they'd read, a Maastricht, read the Maastricht Treaty, which they actually weren't you know, like, very happy that you would end up with a European Central Bank within two a, ge- decades, a generation. Yeah, generation of that, let's say, that was doing quantitative easing, let alone quantitative easing, infinity. <laughs> they would have had heart attacks on the spot. That, it's not, I don't think they even would have had the words to describe what a nightmare that, that would have been from, from, from their point of view. The Eurozone and the European Central Bank in particular, has changed from the terms on which Germany agreed to give up the Deutschmark and the, and the Bundesbank as the monetary authority for Germany, or the sovereign, if you like, monetary authority. If you then look at it from the Italian point of view, though, even, I think, perhaps probably from the French point of view, it doesn't look like a, a victory. It doesn't look like, because Germany lost, that Italy, in the Maastricht sense, won. It just seems like another place. But I still think that there's something that yanks, if you like, the dynamics of what goes on in German politics around monetary union, what goes on with the European Central Bank itself to Italian politics. And that is is that I think everybody in the Eurozone game, so to speak, understands that if QE is going to continue, that there have to be constraints on what can happen in Italian democratic politics. And that that means that parties that are really challenge the rules of the eurozone, the fiscal the, the fiscal rules of the eurozone that are still in place, uh, or challenge the way in which the European Central Bank now deals with things and expects a certain kinds of policies to be pursued um, within the member member states. That those governments can't be in power in Italy, and so we have this you know, situation where. We spent a lot of time, if you remember, discussing who was going to win the Italian election back in in 2018. I think we did several podcasts on Italy uh, that year. And what happened after the election was that the, the two Eurosceptic parties, Five Star and the League, formed the government. That We've been through several Italian governments since then. All that time we spent discussing who was going to win, ultimately it was irrelevant. 
because who, as we're speaking, is the Prime Minister of Italy, but the the former president of the European Central Bank and a third of, of his cabinet are also technocrats. I don't think that you can like separate that out in any way from this change that's taken place in what kind of central bank the European Central Bank is. And it's still true that as when the European Central Bank and um, Merkel effectively in their actions in alliance with the Italian, then Italian pres- president, brought down Berlusconi's government in autumn of 2011 so that the European Central Bank has to have, in some sense, some political say in who decides in Italy. That dynamic is still very much with us. So the way that potentially leads into your analysis of democracy, you have a section about democracy and its inherent tensions, and you organise it around a few themes. So one of them is creditor-debtor relationships. So there's a conventional story about democracy, its, its long history in the modern world, where creditor-debtor relationships are its anchor in the sense that one of the things that anchors stable democracies is governments owing money to their citizens. Um, And that's one of the ways that it disciplines both and kind of keeps them locked together, maybe in a doom loop, but it keeps them locked together and it stops certain kinds of democratic conflicts and tensions from pulling a domestic democracy apart. And there are stories of the evolution of the British state, even the American state, in those terms, particularly war finance is one of the things that anchors it. But we're now in a, in a world where, as you describe it, debtor-creditor relationships are one of the fault lines of democratic politics, not least because it is obviously so internationalised, indeed globalised. And this isn't just a European story, it's not just Southern Europe, debtor states, Northern Europe sometimes, creditor states, but it characterises China-America relations too, that these debtor-creditor relationships don't anchor domestic democracies, they have the potential to pull them apart. And that is a a really acute phenomenon of the last, what, 50 years? When I was uh, finishing uh, the book, I thought that actually I could have made rather more in the end of what happened to that story, that I, I have some bits about it, but I don't think I ultimately pull it together as successfully as I might have done. Both you and I were influenced by that book by James MacDonald, um, A Free Nation Deep in Debt, I think it's called, and which is a fantastic account, which really, I think both, you know, as I remember at the time, we were both really taken with. Of It was a different way of thinking about democratic politics and the history of republics and before that and dem- democratic politics and how the citizen creditor essentially was the anchor of democracies and he says at the end of that book that this world ends in the 1970s and I've essentially followed his argument in this respect what really interesting is what happens to democratic politics when actually the primary debt that governments have to worry about is actually not the debt of their citizens as say the household debt of their citizens not their own debt which in some sense central banks are now taken care of for them when things get difficult in the financial markets and at the moment they're not and they can borrow at extraordinarily low rates of interest but what when it's banks debts to each other and what when those banks debts to each other are as internationalized as they are and that is the world in which we come to live and I'm not sure that in thinking about democracies we've got any idea really what that means particularly in a way if everything that McDonald's arguing in and a free nation deep in debt is right. 
I mean, this is speculative, and that's partly why I don't think, as I say, I followed through this as systematically as I really should have done. They can't actually begin to grapple with what what this means, and the things that have grounded them in the past and often haven't been understood have grounded in the past, they don't exist anymore. But it's not only that they don't exist, this whole other problem, which they seem unable to touch in some sense. That connects to another theme in, in your democracy section, which I found really interesting and provocative, and I'm sort of even thinking about it now as we talk. Again, there are these conventional stories which you really successfully in this book often undercut. That, you know, there's a conventional view about the danger to democracy, which is you know, can be characterised, and you use this language as democratic excess, and the role of central banks is to be understood in those terms. That democracies, this was a, certainly a very prevalent view in the 1970s, the crisis of democracy literature. Democracies have a tendency to inflation, to debt, to ill discipline. You know, the people will elect governments that will offer them goodies that they can't afford. And there's a role for institutions that stand on the edges or outside of democratic politics to rein that in, to rein in democratic excess. But you say there's another problem that democracies have, which is aristocratic excess. You know, the ways in which those institutions, but other institutions too, power holders, people with privilege and you know, inherent advantages, take advantage of their own advantages. So there's so much we could say about that. But one thought I had, one of the things that's so interesting about contemporary politics is the sort of role reversal of how party politics intersects with that. So if you think of the United States, this was a thought I had reading your book, so you can totally tell me this is wrong. But you think of the United States, again, the conventional view is that Republicans criticised the Democratic Party for democratic excess. So Republicans were sort of saying that, you know, this party which is pandering on questions of inflation and welfare and so on, uh, risks bankrupting the country. And the Democrats criticised the Republicans for aristocratic excess. They were the party of Wall Street, they were the party of the elites, you know, they were the capitalists and so on. Though those two parties have had such complicated overlapping roles in American history, who represents whom and their coalitions. But that's a deep story in American politics. And it's kind of turned on its head in the sense that the Republican critique of the Democratic parties, it's the party of aristocratic excess. It's the party of the elites, it's the party of you know, the educated technocratic elites. And the Democratic criticism of the Republicans, and there's something similar with Labour and the Conservatives here is they've become the populists. They've become the party of democratic excess. And it's one of the ways in which our politics is so mind-bending that that thing has kind of turned on its head. I see exactly what you mean. In terms of American politics, my take is that what you see in the politics of aristocratic excess is that, or most of those anyway, who are fighting for office, who are running in elections, want to win them, they have to take... Uh, a lot of money to run those elections and as they compete with each other they find a set of grievances to appeal to and some of those grievances will be directed at elites and I think you're absolutely right you can see that there's a kind of move where the, the Democrats have been the party that have been attacking like financial elites and then the Republicans sort of find a way of doing it as well just attack it as cultural elites and and technocratic elites but I think that there isn't really anything that's able to articulate some genuine democratic demands within the way in which the American party system works. Now, clearly there is an attempt on the left of the Democratic Party to change that because the whole critique of the left of the Democratic Party has been against, if you like, corporate politics, against donor-driven politics. That's really what Bernie Sanders was trying to do. He was trying to run for President of the United States, and say it may be an oligarchy. He was even using the word um, oligarchy. But we, in some sense, we the people, to use the 
American language. If we all give our small amounts of money, if we all give our human energy to this, we can still change the system, we can still claim the democracy back for itself. But I do think that the crucial thing is is that we would expect that in politics, when it's very hard to do that successfully, that you will find those who are successfully competing for office trying to accuse the other of aristocratic excess and trying to put themselves in some symbolic sense on the side of democracy, whether it's democracy in a cultural sense or whether it's democracy in an economic sense. By implication in the American system, there isn't really an outlet for genuine, if that's the word, yeah. democratic excess. But for the critics of Brexit, Brexit was democratic excess. You know, the, the referendum itself as a device is democratic excess. And Brexit is in some senses a response to aristocratic excess. I mean, it, it's a more genuine, potentially, version of that dichotomy. I think that more can be done, actually, in Brexit actually being a challenge to the, the status quo than anything that's really happened in the United States. And I think that the referendum is the, the crucial part of that. If Brexit had happened because the Conservatives had gone into the 2015 general election, a promise in their manifesto to take the United Kingdom out of the European Union and they'd won that general election, I think it would be a lot more difficult to cast this in terms of a democratic moment against aristocratic excess. It's because it was a referendum on an extraordinarily important constitutional, economic and geopolitical question in which the voters as a collectivity were just asked to decide. And it's because the Prime Minister and his government, who asked them to decide, didn't want them to decide in the way in which that they did. Something that was unable to be expressed in the, the structures of British democracy as it was going along at the time came from outside. Even though it, the invitation for it to come and that answer to come came from somebody who was right at the heart of power as a existed perhaps even in a straightforward aristocratic excess kind of way. So to finish, in your book, it's clear, and, and people need to read the book to get the full picture of this, how the different things we've been talking about intersect in various ways. And part of the complexity of understanding contemporary politics, and Helen's one of the few people who can do this, is that you do need to keep these things in mind at the same time. If you think about climate change, some of the things that we've talked about suggest the ways in which it's going to be very difficult to however we want to conceive that problem, to tackle it, to address it. But also, you know, there, there is a sort of interconnectedness here and a possible set of incentives that could drive the energy transition in a way that is sustainable and maybe leads us to a better place. What do you think is the thing that makes it hardest? So you know, we've talked about energy dependence and independence, but also interdependence. We've talked about a world in which the dollar, but not just the dollar, certain financial institutions and systems play particular roles that are constraining, but also allow for ill discipline and create geopolitical tensions. We've talked about democracy. We haven't talked much about China as an alternative system, but we've talked about democracy and its current challenges. Where do you think is the biggest, if you if you want to give the pessimistic view, where what's the thing that really makes climate change look like such an intractable problem? But on the other side of that, where in this space do you think there is the opportunity for for managing that problem? Pessimistic answer probably lies back to that moment we were talking about in relation to Jimmy Carter. The malaise moment, as it was called. Yeah, the moment where you have this president who says that any solution to the energy crisis as it then exists, and Carter did have some sense about think of it as an ecological crisis in the long term, as well as a resource crisis and a, a geopolitically driven resource crisis in the in the short term. Any answer involves reduced energy consumption. We have to consume less 
energy. And I think it would be going too far to say that that cost him the presidency. And we know that there were quite a number of other things going on, not least, obviously, the situation with the Iranian hostages and the failed rescue mission. But in some sense, I think it is, you can cast that symbolically as a an end of the Carter presidency, because it's just such a difficult thing for any democratic politician to do, but for an American president to do, to say, actually, the solution is we consume less energy. It goes against so many things. And if you think, and I I, I do think this, uh, that part of the answer to climate change and part of the energy transition has to be using less energy, certainly for Western countries anyway, then we're in, just by that very fact, a really difficult position and I don't think it's actually even just true for democracies I think it's it's true for any country where you've got the idea and obviously China very much has this idea that economies need to grow living standards always need to improve you say it's very hard for an American president some people would say it's not quite as hard for say Xi to make his Carter speech but it it's almost as hard isn't it you can see already that since the economic recovery from the pandemic in its first phase, shall we say, um, began last year and then ran into quite hard energy constraints last autumn before Omicron kind of set us back. Again, you could see that the Chinese state was already engaging in energy rationing quite systematically, including to industry and to, and to households. And I think if you say, well, can the Chinese state do that more readily than the American federal government could now, yes, although American federal government engaged in a great deal of rationing effectively in the 1970s, partly because it did, that's got such a bad name, I think it's hard to see any American politician readily wanting to return to it. If you think about it as the almost like the idea that's legitimating the rule of the Chinese Communist Party and giving up on modernity, industrial, modern economic development, to say we need systematically to consume less energy, not just the short term, but long term too. That is a very difficult, I think, there. So where's, where's the optimism? If there's optimism, I think that it lies in the way in which we can already see that there is a hope, and indeed some attempt to put this hope into action, that the energy transition itself can be used both to rejuvenate economies, particularly perhaps Western economies, rebuild their national manufacturing sectors. I think you can see that very much as part of what Joe Biden's been trying to do in the United States. And in doing that, rebalance democracies, sort of not to take away the problems of aristocratic excess, but at least to chip some of the edges off them, to turn some of those people who feel like they've just repeatedly lost from the way in which the world economy has been organised since the 1970s into people who feel that they've got some kind of stake in it again. Now, there's many, many things you can say where that might sound hopelessly optimistic, but even I think that the, the very idea that you have politicians in Western democracies that are trying to think in something like those terms, they might not have expressed it in the way in which I've just done, means that that complacency I think that took hold and not really being aware of the depth either of the aristocratic excess or the consequences of the aristocratic excess I think we've kind of left that politics behind I mean as I say that might be very naive and optimistic of me but I I just think there's there's less complacency and more understanding of what the stakes are than there were.
Helen's book is Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. It is out now. It is just out. If you have enjoyed talking politics over the years, if you're interested in the themes that we've talked about, you will really get a lot out of this book. Please buy it. And next week, it's our final episode, and we're going to try and sum a few things up. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. In 1956, the inherent tensions of the United States, acting as an oil guarantor for its allies via a supply coming from a part of the world. So I've got some in my throat. <laughs> it is a bit of croissant. It's a bit of pastry. Water. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.